She thumps a cane and drinks champagne Just formidable and judgmental But we can guarantee That she's a quintessential Lady D But recognizes great potential What would Danbury do? Welcome to What Would Danbury Do? A podcast about the Bridgerton series From A to V The first season of Bridgerton reportedly featured 7,500 costume pieces, from gowns and gloves to tiaras and tailcoats. We're the first to admit that Regency wear is not our forte, but it's very much the forte of Hilary Davidson. She's a dress, textiles and fashion historian and curator, and the author of Dress in the Age of Jane Austen. Kate and Hilary sat down together to help get us all abreast of Bridgerton fashion. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as at Bridgerton Pod and Instagram as WWDDPod or join the conversation using the hashtag WWDDPod. Hello everyone, my name is Hilary Davidson and I'm a dress historian and curator and I have been researching Regency dress for about 15 years and in 2019 I published what I found in a book called Dress in the Age of Jane Austen. One of the very first scenes that we're treated to when Bridgerton opens up in front of us is the inevitable tight lacing of a corset. So was this something that actually happened? This kind of showing the corset is what dress historians have started to call the corset myth, that you can't have a corset unless it's tight lacing and oppressive and, you know, the patriarchy TM. So it was kind of frustrating to see Bridgerton open with that. There was a little bit of tight lacing in the Regency period, but um, the point about tight lacing is to make your waist smaller. And when the dresses don't reach the waist and the waistline's under the bust, what's the point? So it was sort of a, um, a superfluous scene, in a sense, um, that it was doing something that wasn't really needed. And also, they weren't wearing anything under their corsets, and they don't throughout the whole show. It drives me bonkers. But <laughs> yes, they, they, the, corset, the corset scene was, I thought, it's, it's a very modern touch to convey our idea of the past, which is not the past's idea of the past necessarily. Right, because we do see Daphne in her underclothes as well, and she's sort of wearing an almost an under-the-bust half corset as opposed to the, and it doesn't look like it's laced very tightly at all. I mean, obviously Daphne is a very slender person, but. There were, that, I mean, there were short stays. So the long stays, short stays, corsets, and stays and corsets are slightly different at this time as well. Corsets oh, really? Were... I didn't know that. Can, can you yeah. tell me the difference? So stays were what were worn throughout the 18th century and they were quite heavily boned, um, heavily whale boned, very form fitting and figure compressing. Mm. And a corset comes in in the late 19th century from the French. It means little body, corset. And it was almost like it's the difference between a wonder bra and a sports bra. So corsets were made out of fabric, they were very lightly boned, and they were sort of more just bust support. So the kind of the corset came in with the stays, and then the form of, you know, what women are doing to support their bosom changes a lot. Um, but in Britain at the time, in the, in the Regency period, you have these short stays 
or corsets as they're sometimes called, they're still kind of working it out. And then you have long stays which reach the waist. So Bridgerton gets that right in that there's different lengths and that they're, they're, they're worn kind of at, at, at different times and with personal taste. But um, yeah, they're still not giving enough room for the bosom and you have to wear something underneath it. What I've been saying is, it's like if you're going to go for a run and you're going to run five or 10 kilometers, you don't not wear socks because otherwise you're going to get terrible blisters. And so when there's that scene later where they're showing how the corset's rubbed, well, of course the corset's rubbed because she's not <laughs> wearing a shift. And then they've got these weird Victoria, um, Edwardian draws on instead of a shift. So it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's an odd choice there. But <laughs> I did like the fact that they did have shorter stays in there as well to show the kind of the variety of underwear. So uh, this actually leads nicely into my next question, which is that we know that Chris Van Dusen has set Bridgerton up as a kind of alternate reality with Queen Charlotte's mixed race heritage being acknowledged and a large visible black aristocracy being established, which means that historical accuracy isn't quite as necessary as it would otherwise be. But you would think that it would still have to be internally consistent in terms of what is happening and what the characters need to wear in order to support their outerwear. So other than being bonnet free, which is a huge change, what else do you think is played with? Well, leaving those chemises off, it's like people have bodies. And even if you're in that sort of, you know, alternative reality reflection of history that they've decided to commit to, which is, you know, I think it, it works well, you know, corsets are still going to rub. And for me, I found the way the bosom sit and what they did with the busts quite confusing because they talk about, you know, how they want to make it sort of sexier and more, you know, sort of more fun and more modern. But the, the whole point of Regency dress for women is the bosom. And they've kind of flattened it rather than emphasised it. And I feel that if you want to make, you know, a show that's really sexy and, and concentrates on the cleavage, they've actually reduced the busts compared with how Regency women presented the bust. I mean, it's a really bosomy time. So <laughs> I feel they've kind of, they've squashed down. I mean, poor Penn, she has, you know, what would be a gorgeous bosom, except her, her waistline kind of cuts across where her nipples are. It's all been flattened down. So I feel that for the, the approach of the show, mm -hmm. um, they could have made things a lot I really feel like it, it was a really bosomy time has to be the title of this episode. <laughs> it was the bosomiest of times. It was the, the flattenest of times. Well, and I think it's, it's interesting because, I mean, because we have the contrast of Daphne, who is incredibly slender and probably mm. doesn't have a bosom to speak of versus Penelope, who very clearly does um trying to wear a similar style so um and that and that empire waist as you're right does tend to draw attention to the cleavage so um yeah it's interesting that you say that they've made that choice to actually downplay poor penelope's splendor 
exactly she could have had you know a gorgeous kind of round bosom mm. the thing about the regency bit is it's it's a revolution in bust support where for the first time in about 400 years instead of having sort of one piece of fabric across the breast and flattening it you finally have two separate breasts and they really I mean, they present them like origins on a plate, really. And, you know, Penelope could have had this kind of gorgeous round bosom rather than sort of flattened. And it's the same. Um, Daphne could have, you know, her assets could have been enhanced somewhat as well um, in, a, in a totally, totally appropriate way. The costume designers spoken about how they, they were sort of perfecting the silhouette. And I think for the men, it's great. But I think for the women, the bosom really is the key point. And when that's slightly off it just shifts the rest of the the silhouettes that they're mm. attempting to create so I think for me that was the big one so we know that clothing in many ways tells, tells us an enormous amount about the culture and what was important to the culture at the time so what do you think these costumes are saying about what's important to the Bridgerton Regency well I really I actually really love the fabric choices I wasn't sure about this when they first came out in the stills, but I think they work really, really well. And I love the colour choices and the playfulness that comes through because I feel that that's actually something that is very Regency. Sometimes costume design can be a little bit tasteful and I'm enjoying the non-tastefulness, you know, which is sort of pushed a bit for the, the Featheringtons. But there's a lot of stuff in the background as well, in the extras, that is a kind of a sense of couture experimentation which I feel is very much in keeping with the, the show's tone. And then also um, Lady Danbury, I'm, frankly, I lust after her wardrobe. The oh. colours, the cut, that whole, you know, she gets all the red, which is the my favourite colour. The hats, it's fabulous. So I think, I think hers is a particularly successful reinterpretation of the cuts of the Regency through a slightly more modern lens. I really love what they did with the, um, there's an organza police or the kind of coat that has a transparency that's very Regency, but in a garment that you wouldn't normally see as being transparent. And I think it conveys her sharpness and her chicness and the way that she's kind of this independent body who is, you know, moving through society on her own terms. So for me, a lot of the colour choices and a lot of the exaggeration in, in many respects conveys that kind of sense of heightened romance land mm -hmm. of the Bridgerton world. I think one of the things that I really liked about Lady Danbury is there's almost a slight masculine yes. touch to the way that they've put her costume together. This hints, I suppose, at the strength of character and, and the power that she has, even as a woman moving through a world where women weren't, didn't have a great deal of power. Agreed. And it, again, it's very Regency. Um, a lot of women's wear was inspired by men's dress, either directly or uh, through just the sort of the filter of the military fashions that were around and very much inspired by the decades of war um, with Napoleon. So let's talk about the Featheringtons, because in the books, they're supposed to be incredibly garish and brazen and everybody understands that they are the height of bad taste except that we're all kind of obsessed with their clothes because we think that they're beautiful. So is it possible that we too have really bad taste or did they actually do it just really well? They haven't got near Regency bad taste. <laughs> um, this is, I think, this isn't, I think perhaps my, like my underlying criticism of Bridgerton is that if you want to take it too far, there are so many ways you could have made it like even further that they did in the period. It's like, that's great guys, but now 
rack it up a notch. <laughs> so the Featheringtons have tasteful bad taste, I would say. It's still very designed. And, you know, I've got files of what I call bad regency. You know, you could have gone far more, far more <laughs> vulgar and off um, if you if you really wanted to. But I think it's that, I think it's that brightness that does appeal. And it's perhaps not what we're not used to seeing in adaptations of, of Regency dress. Uh, the recent 2020 Emma, I think, did it quite well with the colour. And they also did um, Mrs Elton brilliantly. So she's she's perfectly Regency, but you can see that she's too much and it's all just a bit exaggerated and vulgar. But I, I really actually really enjoyed the colour choices. And I think what we're responding to as much is the fun in the Featheringtons, mm. the sense of play and enjoyment and you know, going a bit too far. And and in a sense, what they do is they contrast nicely with that kind of terribly tasteful duck egg blue that the Bridgertons all wear. Um, They're very yeah. pastel, the Bridgertons. Very pastel, very pastel. I don't understand Lady Featherington's outfits, though, because she has one dress in about 17 different colourways, and it's a very late 19th century dress. I mean, <laughs> it's all about the waist and she's got an hourglass figure and she's got a sweetheart neckline and it's very 1890s. And that's that's the one costuming I don't understand, but perhaps the actress had input into that. And sometimes actresses can be very clear about how they'd like to be dressed and appear on screen. I mean, it's that modern choice of when you find something that works for you, get it in eight different colors. That's definitely, I mean, I was looking and she she literally only has one dress and it's just the <laughs> colorways that are, are different. It's all cut exactly the same, no matter no matter where she's at. I mean, she looks fantastic all the way through. I think she found the shape that works for her, even if it's, what, some 80 years in the future. It's completely non-Regency. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, under her dresses, she would be required to wear sort of a tighter corset, surely. Yes, she would have to because all the emphasis is on the waist where mm. it isn't in the Regency period. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't quite understand that one. And I've, I've not seen the designer talk specifically about that. So but as I say, you never know what goes on behind the scenes and what negotiations were conducted. Mm. So absolutely. Um, so can we talk really quickly about the debutante scene where yes. Daphne and her cohort of um, new debutantes are all presented to the queen and they're all wearing white gowns and they have these amazing white feathers in their hair. What can you tell us about that sort of aristocratic rite of passage, I suppose? Well, they're not wearing hoops. At that time in the Regency period, they should have been wearing hoops under their armpits. The way that the costume designer has dressed Queen Charlotte and her women, uh, she has got the idea that she dressed more old-fashioned and Queen Charlotte and her ladies are all dressed in about 1780s fashion which is not at all what Queen Charlotte did she she dressed up to date but the hoops that they wear at the side to make their dresses stand out they are uh, hoops or panniers they're like structured underskirts or almost baskets worn at the side under your skirt to make it wider and this was formal court dress so if you went to court this was what you had to wear and the thing is that the requirements for putting hoops under your skirt stayed even as the waistline went up in the 1790s. So by the 1800s, what you have is waistlines under the bust, 
and then your hoops which should be sitting at your waist actually kind of sticking out from under your armpits there and it is one of the most ridiculous fashions <laughs> that has ever occurred in the history of the world in my professional opinion <laughs> and so and it's not until 1820 when the prince of wales became george the fourth that this requirement for formal hoops at court was abolished so that what the debutantes and in fact what everybody at court should have been wearing is a mashup of queen charlotte and her ladies clothing and then all the debutantes clothing because the point at court was everyone visiting was conforming to the highest standards of etiquette that are set by the court so the queen and all her ladies dress in a certain way and then visiting the court you have to dress the same way so in a sense that contrast between queen charlotte and all of these gorgeous young sylph-like debutantes the the contrast shouldn't be there they should be mirroring each other um, so but i'm picturing a whole pile of very young women essentially with the silhouette of a traffic cone Yes, but with less grace. Right. <laughs> Imagine if you stood in front of a bookshelf that came up to about bust level. Right. And then you draped a sheet over you and the bookshelf. And oh, so, so they were sort of square, stuck out sorry, behind. So the, the, yeah, they're yes, sort of, right. yeah, they come out like shelves at the side. It's wow. not very flattering. I mean, you really don't want to put all your gorgeous young actresses into that kind <laughs> of fashion. Would it have been possible to make, like, to make it the kind of deep curtsy that they're required in? Yes, in that structure? absolutely. Yes. I've done it myself, so I speak from experience, but there's actually a lot more movement in there than there might have been. Mm -hmm. But other elements of the debutante's dress is, is conforming to court dress. So the fact that you had to appear in white um, and then you could have expensive decoration on it. And most particularly the feathers, the three ostrich feathers, mm -hmm. that was absolutely required. Um, mm -hmm. And they should have trains as well, falling from their shoulders down the back of the dress. And this was, uh, formal court etiquette and it's what you had to wear to be presented at court. There's no real reason for it except custom and tradition but also knowing how it is that you have to conform to what is done. Mm. Um, while we're talking about Queen Charlotte can we discuss her wigs? Oh they're fabulous. Aren't they? Aren't they fantastic? <laughs> but um, what, if we're talking about sort of mirroring fashion and, and um, uh, you know, the, the aristocracy expected to conform to what the queen is leading, but she's the only one who wears these fantastic wigs. Everybody else has quite what is, uh, you know, expected to be quite natural hair. Well, that's because they've taken that they've dressed her completely from the 1780s. Okay. So her clothing is 30 years out of date, um, which is not at all what Queen Charlotte wore. I mean, she wasn't a she wasn't a fashionable woman, but mm. she very much kept up to date. And I mean, there's I, there's a wonderful record of her complaining that she has to order more dresses than she can possibly wear because she gives them away to her ladies in waiting, like they're they're, they're perks of the job, you know, literally perquisites. So she is constantly ordering clothing, and you know, has to be sort of reasonably up to date. And so the wigs are part of that costuming decision to make Queen Charlotte much, much older. And then they partake of that fantastic um, late 18th century kind of exaggeration and excess. I mean, in the Regency period, people are still wearing wigs, but they're natural looking wigs. So they're not as well, they're not as easy to spot. Mm. 
It's interesting because we've talked about Lady Danbury and her quite powerful dress and the Bridgertons and their incredibly very tasteful and refined dress. And you say that Queen Charlotte's dress is stuck 30 years in the prior. Is that about the time when her husband started to um, struggle with his infirmity? It is. It is. Um, yeah, which may be another reason that they decided mm. to, to to place sort of her back there. Pause her in that time back when she was happy, I suppose, or yeah. in a happy family. So almost create a situation where she doesn't move forward because her husband is no longer able to. That's a really good point. I think mm. that's probably underlies the decision as well. Mm. So we've talked about the Queen, we've talked about Daphne, but um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about the way, what Bridgerton has done is it's actually provided us with several different ideas of class at the time as well, because we have the Mediste, Genevieve, Delacroix, and then we have Sienna, of course, who's an opera singer. Can you give us a little indication of how dress would change for each of those women? Well, first of all, Modiste is completely a French term and I've never seen it used in Britain. Right. Um, <laughs> yes, she would have been a milliner, um, right. a milliner or a dressmaker. Um, so it, I, I sort of was, was surprised to find her as a, a Modiste. And also her her output far exceeds her capabilities. That, you know, she would have be, had a lot of women working yeah. for her. <laughs> there did appear to be only one dressmaker in the entirety of London. And, you know, that was it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it was. Uh, and, and then she, you know, the disparaging comments about, you know, young women who've got nothing better to do but sew. Well, I mean, that's how she makes her livelihood. <laughs> so. I mean, the, the, the positions of, you know, the working women, obviously, Sana, we see her in, costumes more often than not or in you know her underwear without a chemise and the I mean at least they do show the working women but the for a performer it's a different aspect it would actually be more like the aristocratic women's because she's on stage a lot and when she's off stage she I mean women like that often had more aristocratic aristocratic lovers they got great clothes so her class is not necessarily reflected in her dress in a way that it would have been for say the middle classes mm -hmm. um and then of course for uh, someone whose clothing is how she makes a living you want to be well dressed because you need to show that you are in the pink of fashion and you know what's going on and um but also it was important and i've seen this a lot in in regency texts you have to be well-dressed but not better dressed than your clients because that would show kind of impertinence and being above your station so it was a kind of a, a borderline like i've got taste but you're going to have more taste <laughs> um talking about sienna and how we see her in various states of undress how can you please explain to us how underwear works that she is able to have sex in public quite as often as she does well, quite frankly, Regency women didn't wear underpants. Oh, well, There's nothing going easier. on under there. So all you have to do is hoik up your skirts. And, <laughs> and voila, it's it's much it's much simpler. Like jeans and knickers make it a lot more complicated nowadays if you, you know, <laughs> feel the need. Um, let's let's uh, transition to the men because we've talked a lot about the beautiful dresses. <laughs> 
But what was Anthony wearing that he was able to have sex in public quite so often? Well, <laughs> the advantage of Regency trousers is that they have much bigger flies. Okay. So now trousers have a center fly, which, you know, zips or, or buttons down, down the middle and then, you know, have a belt. But in the Regency period, they had four front flies. So you, you kind of do your breeches together um, at the center underneath but only with a couple of, you know, a few centimetres down. And then you kind of have this flap that comes up and then buttons over that fly um, as well. So it's a kind of a more complicated arrangement. But um, how do I put this? When the front fly comes down, a lot more of the crotch is exposed in one go than in a centre fly. And, you know, there's less constriction. Makes it easier to get out whatever you need to get out. <laughs> so essentially, it's almost like a diaper, like a nappy that sort of comes through the middle and then buttons up at the front. Yeah, it's I, I know what it's like. Um, sailor trousers. The oh, whole okay. sort of you know sailor trousers with two buttons on the side that we have now actually comes originally from this period. So. If you, um, yeah, if you kind of have that front flap that, that the button's down, that's that's what it's like. Um, right, okay. Yeah. And they're not necessarily wearing underwear either. They could wear linen drawers, but they might just have their shirt tucked between their legs. So, again, it's easy for things to fly free. <laughs> so the men don't really enjoy the sort of, um, I suppose, brightness and, and fantasy color palette that the women do, which I understand is actually not historically accurate, that the men actually in the Regency period were able to wear really bright colors and it wasn't, it was considered fashionable. Well, it was actually a period where men's clothing is starting to become more somber. Hmm. And so clothing did get darker in general for men. I mean, we still have a lot of pale colors in sort of the breeches and some of the waistcoats and things like that. But compared with, say, the court suits of the 18th century that were made of silk and heavily embroidered, that just starts to become a little bit duller. And we get the beginning of the 19th century division between kind of dark men and pretty decorative women. So it was getting, you know, coats are generally black, green or brown. Or, or blue, you know, you 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 mostly only see red in kind of hunting things like that. There's some there's some brightness in the waistcoat. You can kind of play with that, but for men, exaggeration becomes more about the silhouette. So you have very high uh, shirt collars, you have sort of narrower waists, you have very tight boots, you've got very wide shoulders, but less about the fabric and the colours. It's interesting actually that you say that because Simon doesn't have that high collar through. The vast majority mm. of our scenes whereas you know the bridgerton brothers all have the ones that look like they're cutting into the side of their cheeks all the time what do you think was the decision behind that other than perhaps think, simon just found it uncomfortable <laughs> i think they've gone with simon is a rake so we're going to make him look disheveled uh the whole kind of open neck is very byronic um he is wearing his silk cravat inside his shirt which he wouldn't do because it's harder to wash i mean this is just you know minor practicalities on the way through but i think they've gone for you know he's supposed to be a rake so let's make him look a bit more like he's already started to undress we don't complain about that too too much we do not complain about that at all <laughs> um he's a fine was... figure of a man i mean <laughs> 
what was your favorite costume or costume choice at a Bridgerton? From a personal point of view, I just, there was one, there was one outfit of Lady Danvers, sorry, Danbury, I'm watching too much Rebecca. Um, <laughs> there was one outfit where she had this fabulous kind of um, burgundy and beige pelisse and it just, I, I looked at it and went, I want that. But that's from a, a quite personal point of view. But you know what, I really like the Featherington girls. I just, I like the way fabrics have been used. I like the good way the colours have been used. I I like where that pushes things and it does actually play off a, a lot of Regency ideas. So I'm always wanting to see, you know, as a, as a dress historian, I always want to see new interpretations of historic costume. And if you're going to push it and twist it, I want to see something I haven't seen before. And I feel like the Featheringtons is something that I haven't seen before in Regency dress. And since Regency is a period that I feel people don't experiment with as much as they could, as I say, like I'm still waiting for so much of the kind of crazy, vulgar, exaggerated things to be done in the Regency and nipples. There's not enough nipples in, in Regency adaptations. But the Featheringtons for me kind of pushes it and it's fresh and new. So I'm, I'm going to say collectively the, the, the girls' costumes. We need to go back to the why there aren't enough nipples in Regency costuming. I feel like this is a this, thing we need to discuss. Yes. Um, I found myself talking about nipples a lot recently <laughs> because one of the things that happens with the changes in stays and corsets is that as each breast is supported kind of separately, um, a lot of the gussets don't necessarily cover the nipple. They kind of support underneath like a three-quarter bra. So what you see if you start looking, and I apologise to the listeners because I assure you once you start looking, you can't unsee how many nipples there are in Regency dress. And sometimes they are coming through translucent muslin. If you're a very beautiful lady or, a, you know, a, an aristocrat, lots of the French, lots of French nipples. But there are, is a series of oil portraits of all of the daughters of George III, and you can clearly see them high beaming. And I've seen pictures of satin evening dress where, you know, a very respectable woman in pearls and satin. And, you know, she's, she's had her portrait painted by Thomas Lawrence, one of the great painters of the period. And she's got visible nipples. You can see them coming through the dress. And we never, ever see this in adaptations. And even Bridgerton, this is, this is you know, this is what I mean. They could go so much further until we see nipples. Bridgerton was um, the one like, chance that we could have seen the nipples. one chance. <laughs> I mean, maybe season two will bring us nipples. Um, so but that's, you know, and you see it because you see it in kind of the, the respectable portraits. If the, if the king's daughters have, you know, got something faintly visible, then clearly this is something that was, you know, it was still kind of risque, but it's not unacceptable. And if we're going to go for nipples, then I'm just going to go for the other thing that I still want to see on a Regency adaptation, which Please is, do. I've still not quite found a way to, to put this elegantly, but our podcast has an E rating. It's fine. <laughs> okay. So men had very tight trousers and there's a lot of stretch fabrics going on, a lot of jersey going in pantaloons and some breeches. And again, if you start looking in men's portraits, you'll find that a lot of the time you can see not only what side they dressed, 
but exactly how much they're packing. And sometimes you can even see, you know, that they're definitely not Jewish or Muslim. And, you know, I feel that that's also an opportunity for Regency costume that has not been sufficiently exploited. <laughs> we should write a letter to Bridgerton. <laughs> Basically on, on Twitter, I'm finding myself, I've just resorted to the hashtag nipples and junk. Right. <laughs> so until this is this is what I want in my Regency costuming is is nipples and junk. No, that's the title of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, so you know, and it's not everyone, it's not all the time, but mm. that's all I'm saying is the trousers were very tight. And when you look at Taylor's books, they give you uh, discrete instructions for deciding which side you need to add a little bit more to in the leg when you're mm. measuring a gentleman. <laughs> Um, all right, tell me what for you was the most egregious costume choice? For me, it's a tie between the bosom flattening corsets mm -hmm. and Lady Featherington's Bella Pop gown. I do not understand it. It doesn't work with anything else that anyone else is wearing. Like even within even within the world building of Bridgerton, mm -hmm. it's an anomaly. So I don't understand why that silhouette for that one character and so consistently and yeah so that particularly and then just the fact that the court that the bosoms are all flattened when they should be abundant and glorious um <laughs> that that's i think i think what i feel didn't work most for me that's all for this bonus episode of what would danbury do Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts because we still have a few bonus episodes up our sleeve. And of course, we'll be back next week with Bridgerton episode four, An Affair of Honour. In the meantime, if all this costume talk has inspired you to sew your own Bridgerton-inspired Regency dress, I'd like to recommend a Facebook group that Bianca, aka Book Hoarding, put together. According to the group description, it's for people who want to get into Regency costuming but aren't worried about historical accuracy. Full disclosure, I'm not in the group because my own sewing adventures are sporadic and largely a bonding exercise between me and my ngamba. But I still wanted to tell you about it. We'll have a link to the Facebook group in the show notes so you can find it easily. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook as at BridgertonPod and Instagram at WWDDPod. Or send us an email at BridgertonPod at gmail.com. This episode was recorded on the traditional and unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Bunwurrung and Gadigal people and edited by me, Rudy Bremer, on Gadigal Country. Thanks for listening and remember, WWDD. What Would Danbury Do is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.